Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. The CFO role is changing rapidly, moving from cost controller to strategic visionary. And with every change comes opportunity. We are here to help you take advantage of this transition, to win at work, drive your career forwards, and lead with confidence. Join Hannah Monroe, Managing Director of ITAS, a financial transformation consultancy, as she interviews key experts to give you real-world advice and guidance on how to transform your processes, people, and data. Welcome to CFO 4.0, the future of finance. So hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of CFO 4.0. So with me today is Alwyn Jones. Now, Alwyn has um, previously been CFO at Monzo and is currently CFO at Luno. So uh, I don't know what to hear has about uh, businesses that end in O, but he's obviously got a pattern that he's choosing here. Um, so welcome, Alwyn. Great to have you on the show. Nice to be here, Hannah. Thank you for inviting me. So, um, so we've recently just chatting before the show. We obviously realised that we we um, we grew up about four miles from each other, which is rather scary. But apart from obviously um, originally being from North Wales, do you want to tell us a little bit about your history? Where you know how did you end up in the role of a CFO um, at Monzo and Luno, and you know how did you get there? Yeah, it's a. Uh... It's quite fun to find connections, right? Wales is a small country, and you find it's a small world, uh, and and the reach extends everywhere. Uh, <laughs> but it's a good question because I'm not a typical um, CFO by background, so I'm not a chartered accountant. Um, and actually, to come to CFO relatively late, finance relatively late. But what I have been is essentially a financial services geek for 20 years. Um, so I started my career in investment banking, moved over to fatigue, specialising in that area. Did consulting at Bain, again, largely for financial services companies, spent a big stint at Barclays. And the common thread through all of this has been businesses that are scaling and trying to change. Um, so the thing I loved about consulting was you were working on the most pressing problem in the business. Uh, Barclays was leading digital disruption in the mainstream banks. Monzo was doing the same thing at an incredibly higher pace. Uh, and now we're really innovating at the cutting edge of financial services in cryptocurrency. So it's been a curious, and I wouldn't say pre-planned path, but very consistent in terms of the interest in what I'm trying to bring to the party. So uh, it feels good and a very logical solution to looking back, I can tell a story, but at each point it's, it's a decision and you, you make a decision that's in front of you and go on what's most attractive at the time. And do you know what's really interesting is you're not the first CFO I've had on the show that hasn't come from this traditional accounting or practice-based mm-hmm. background. So what, as you, firstly, was it a conscious shift that you wanted to become a CFO or was it a shift where you it, the opportunity arose and you just jumped on it and took advantage of the, the opportunity? So more the latter. Um, so I remember reaching a particular point at, at Barclays um, where my boss walked into my performance review and said, uh, here's your performance review, like, fine. Um, I've resigned, I think you should too, um, which is a great <laughs> opening. Uh, wow. And I literally walked out of that meeting and up on LinkedIn popped up the job for Monzo. Wow. Uh, and I knew the coup at that point, uh, Tom Foster Carter from Bay, so we'd worked together before. And I thought, oh, they won't want me. But Monzo was a very interesting company at that point. The the customer offering, what it was trying to do and thinking through the product, how it was approaching the business and and where it was as a um, disruptive influence and growth trajectory of the business was fascinating. I thought, oh, they won't want me. They'll want some accounting. And I went through and read the disruptive description. And what became very clear was they were not looking for a traditional CFO. They were looking for, I hate the word, but more strategic. They wanted a sparring partner for Tom. And that kind of role is increasingly important for all CFOs. But the great joy of finance and sitting in that seat is you start from position of seeing the whole enterprise. Right, Everything shows up in the numbers. You have an obligation to call out where you think things aren't working and actually intervene. And so if I think the marketing strategy isn't working, or I think the technology 
distribution of heads isn't in the right place. I have to raise that and really go to bat with the execs. And Monzo just provided the opportunity to do that in spades. So as I went through the process, I met Tom, I met the rest of the founders, I met my predecessor, I met more and more of the company, just got more and more excited with the approach they were taking to designing something that was customer first in an extreme version. Fresh ways of working that I'd seen bits of at Barclays, but was really being hampered by the size and history of the organization and its legacy tech, and just the opportunity to do something in a completely new way. So it became a natural evolution and quite quite an easy transition in that sense. Uh, of course, then once you, you get into the role, you have to sit there and go, right, I actually need to know how to do this. Um, and you know, no startup in the history of the world, as far as I can tell, has invested in finance from day one as a source of a competitive advantage. So you arrive with this wonderful experience of Monzo, the customer-facing bank, and it's amazing, to spreadsheets and monthly reconciliations. And actually, it's just meeting the chaos of the real world. Uh, and you're playing catch-up from day one. And that's not just Monzo. It's the same at Luno. And each business has its own challenges. But that theme of you start out literally just trying to report the numbers, pay invoices, making sure you know the T-bill is paid on time and people can make payroll, you need to evolve from there to being a proper strategic partner with the business and really adding value. So there's a huge shift as you scale a business and what you're expected to focus on. But you can't leave that stuff behind, right? You have to do the basics well as well at the same time. And that's a major change curve to be on, particularly if you're learning the role for the first time. And obviously, you had the strategy side of that CFO role down pat. It was actually probably the area you were more comfortable with, which is almost the opposite yes. for a lot of CFOs that are going into their or finance people that are going into their first role. But how did you fill the gap on the other side? So that traditional, but not bookkeeping, but you know, like finance operations piece. How did you approach that side of the, the role? So I think the first thing to say, I didn't do it perfectly. Right. Um, and I made plenty of mistakes and some of them probably complete powers. Uh, and I'm sure my team were despairing of me at times. Um, but I knew enough to ask reasonably sensible questions. I had a good team underneath me. So there were four or five folks when we first joined Monzo. I think finance was about 40 by the time I left. Um, all of them trained accountants, dedicated, knew the business backwards and, and really tight as a team, which makes a big difference, right? You've not got silos, not got people trying to get one up. They just want to get the business to work. And so they bring you all of the issues. And then the other bit that was really important was tapping into the hinterland. So your audit partners, other big four, advisors, consultants, everyone's prepared to share your perspective and it's essentially free consulting. So you build your knowledge base through that. And in retrospect, the fact that I didn't know a lot of this stuff and didn't come with a preconceived idea of how it should be working was a gift because I could actually just look at the problem, look at what was going on, think about where we needed to get to from first principles, which is a key Monzo trade and something that we share at Luno, and then think through how to answer the problem. And that is actually more creative, but was actually better for generating buy-in from the team and the rest of the business because you were prepared to listen because you had no choice. Uh, and so sometimes being forced into that role where you have to ask questions, you have to be curious because you don't know the answer actually gets you to a better place and wins you a lot of trust in the process. So it was a really accidental but valuable lesson. And I've tried to maintain that approach as I've gained experience and gone, right, actually, I know how to do a lot of this stuff. There's always something new to figure out. And particularly when you're dealing with a new area like cryptocurrency, where even the physical process of how you audit a digital asset is still an open question. And some auditors won't touch it. So how do you think through that, again, from first principles and demonstrate that you have what you expect to have? That approach just keeps repaying dividends time and time again. Yeah, so uh, there, there's always that joke, isn't it, about curiosity? Is this is it a sin or a virtue? Nobody quite knows, but obviously in this case, it's definitely more on the virtue side. So um, I think I what, there's times where you pick up the rock and go, "I really wish I hadn't picked the rock up because 
because what's underneath <laughs> it is pretty horrible. Yeah. And with a scaling business that moves as quickly as a Luna or a Monzo, by the time you figured out there's a problem, you probably should have been working on it eight to 12 months ago. So you really do need to move quite quickly when you find those things. Yeah, before it gets too big a problem and becomes too big a challenge. Yes. And I guess that's one of the other challenges, as it were, when you're moving with those fast growing, you know, startup to scale ups in in that transition phase is that you have so many, everything's a priority. There is so much to do. How did you balance, you know, the auditing piece, being able to step aside and do the strategy side with um, with the exec? Plus, you know, obviously getting your house in order as well. So what what was that like? So it is a balancing act and you will not be perfect in any dimension. So there's plenty of control failings that I've learned to live with. And you take a risk-based approach about knocking over which one is the thing most likely to kill you. The thing that really helped me was figuring out if a particular problem was above or below the fire line. So you've got to have a list, right? What is our US strategy? How are we going to get through the internal um, IT general controls audit? How are we going to face off to the regulator in this discussion? Should I be promoting Fred? Is Fred the right person to be in this particular role? Right, All of these things are just stuff floating in your head. So first thing is get it out of your head, get it into some kind of system because your, your mind's a really good place for having ideas, but it's a really rubbish place to remember them and what you need to be doing about them. And then just the line of, is this going to kill us right now? Six months from now, how close is the fire? And just draw your line if this is where the firewall has to be. Uh, and that crude prioritization does give you the ability to sort of go, right, this is the most important thing to be working on. You can then ask yourself the question, am I the right person to be doing it or can I delegate it out? If you can, absolutely. You should only be working on stuff that only you can do. That gets the list down relatively quickly. And once you know it's those two or three things, one, the stress goes, two, you're very credible talking to your stakeholders about what you are doing, what you are not doing right now, and it looks under control. Whereas if you end up in that whirlwind of, what about this? Where's this coming from? And where's the next piece? And how do I fit that together? You don't look in control. And at times in my career, I've looked very in control and been very successful. And other times I've looked like a complete mess. Um, and part of being a successful CFO over time is learning how you build that personal resilience that you show up more of the time looking like you want to look like and less of the time you've just been jagged your edge backwards and you don't know what day of the week it is because you're just bouncing from meeting to meeting. Um, a lot of this is in your control, but it's are you taking the time to think through where you're focusing the time and attention and creating that time on the ball, so to speak, that you can just make the decisions in the right way and the rest just falls into place behind it. But it's really hard. It requires discipline and it's not easy to get right. You know, but someone once described the experience in a startup is you, know, you go from wonderful meetings where you're making real progress on your deliverables or product and you feel like you're going to take over the world to something that feels like you've just been punched in the face. And that can be within an hour. Right. Um, and you've just got to be able to roll with both of those. I think that's a really interesting point. I, I, we don't really see resilience much on job descriptions, but I think for a startup, it's it's like one of the most key factors. The ability yeah. to, you know, if we talk about spinning plates and that's obviously a key factor, but that ability to to take those knocks and just get back up again and move things forwards, it, you know, because it, it's things are going to go wrong at that level because you don't have the processes, you don't have the controls in place. It's, it's a really challenging environment to be in. Yeah, it's the old sort of you're building the plane as you're flying it, right? And you're trying to change it as you're flying it. Um, so... You know, the finance team is running, right? They're doing their flash reporting. They're doing their month-end close. And you're trying to shift them from spending most of their time trying to tell you what the numbers are to what they mean. Because that's critical to being able to make rapid decisions for the rest of the business. And so you're trying to make that shift whilst you're still in the, are they doing four eye checks? Is the bank reconciliation working? Do we have the customer funds we expect to have? Where we expect to have them? Have we given the right customers the right money? All of that just needs to happen. 
But when you start a business, it, it's a monumental effort to get that to happen. And so you're almost transferring that to the muscle memory of the organization, freeing up space to think about stuff. Finance working well is the nervous system of the organization, right? And I actually find the decision pace of the organization will naturally adjust itself to what the finance team are doing. So unintentionally, you can be a break on the business um, or an accelerant, but you won't necessarily notice that because you're just in it. And so the pace will feel right. And then you'll discover the disconnect. And that could be quite painful when it happens. So as you're continuing to build the faster and faster plane, you need to be layering on capability and capability and capability. And hopefully doing that at a pace the business needs and can absorb and is keeping pace with the business. Do you know what? That's a really interesting insight that actually finance defines the pace of the business, even though it's, I would say it's probably one of the areas that's most underinvested in. As in, yes. within, it's the last piece of the puzzle that gets the funding and the and the and the and the support, which I find fascinating. Well, it's the observe and orientate part of the um, John Boyd of the US Fighter School. So I haven't watched Maverick yet, but I'm pretty excited. <laughs> it's great, it. right? If you if you know uh, anyone's listening, it's a cracking watch. <laughs> it, it is, but that quote: "If you think up there, you're dead." That I've seen in so many trailers. Um, Actually, a lot of the Top Gun fighter school was based on a guy called John Boyd. John 42nd Boyd called that because he could shoot people down in 40 seconds. <laughs> but he defined this whole methodology around observe, orientate, decide, act of the decision cycle. And how quickly you went through the decision cycle as a fighter pilot meant you shot down more people because you were just getting ahead of the curve on them. So you were reacting faster. The same is true in business. You have to observe what's going on, figure out what it means, decide, and then act. And the faster you do that, with higher quality, because you can't just do it breakneck. One of the things we found at Bain was like decision-driven organizations are more successful, but that's high quality and high pace of decision-making. They don't sit on things for a long period of time. But that observe and orientate phase, you need numbers, right? You need to know how the business is performing. You need to know how operational metrics are affecting the financials. You need to be able to put cost-benefit analysis against investments because everything else is just fluff. So if you're slow providing that data or the data is out of date or it's backward-looking, the business is flying blind. It can't make decisions quickly enough. And that's what I'm talking about in terms of a natural break because if it takes you a week to get the data, then you're a week delayed on your decision-making or you're making perhaps a suboptimal decision because you don't have the analysis that you want. But you won't necessarily see that if it takes ginger 15 days to produce data that should be instantly available and that's where clients can really affect the pace and quality of decision making and actually have a seat at the table as well so given that fact that obviously finance like you say they impact the, the pace of decision making why do you think that businesses don't invest in finance and that that analytical reporting capability at an earlier stage, why do you think it goes elsewhere? Is it a lack of um, awareness and understanding of the impact of finance? It's an interesting question. I think one of the things I've observed is people tend to grow their expectations of finance and their understanding of what's possible over time, right? So when you're first starting up, people care that payroll happens, that suppliers are paid, that you have enough cash to stay alive uh, and much else doesn't really matter and then there's some reporting that people do but the CFA gets very agitated about accounting policies and but we'll, we'll let them get on with that and actually I think over time they realize something's missing and what's missing is the forward-looking view of the planning and analysis the scenario planning the rigor around commercial decision making that a good finance team can provide not in a way of getting in the way of the business or saying, oh, we can't do that until we've done our number crunching, but just providing that perspective and being very rigorous about, well, what metric have you defined this as? What does that actually mean? And if that goes in the right direction, is that a good thing for the business or are there second or third order effects that mean actually that could be a bad thing? What are the knock-on consequences? Right, so... I could task my marketing department with getting cost per install for the app down as low as possible. 
But the way they'll do that is not spend as much marketing. They'll go to suboptimal channels. They won't necessarily attract the right customers. So I could be getting customers really cheaply at the top of our acquisition funnel, but they do absolutely no business with us when they arrive. So in all of these things, I want to balance that. But if you set the marketing team with just that one objective and don't have, as Andy Grover talked about, the hairy metric that guards against the unintended consequence, you're on a high to nothing. And finance can bring that. And so back to your question, I think you start from a position of get the basics working, get the bank accounts, get recs, get reporting, get invoices paid. And then people realize actually there's a lack in the organization and the natural place to provide that is from finance. There are other areas. Uh, you know, the bank risk department will very often do that. Uh, in regulated businesses like Luno and Monzo, the compliance department, so critical friends, as they termed, that don't get in the way of product and engineers and people delivering what they need to deliver, but help them to deliver something that makes more sense for the business and customers. And that's the sweet spot. But it takes time to realize that's even something that finance should do, right? Um, I've had this at both Monzo and Luno where people have a contract and they know they need a lawyer because it's all written in legalese and they can't understand it, but they don't necessarily think they need a finance view on the commercial. And one of the things, um, it's almost like uh, I talked to our chief people officer and she said, like, people think working in HR or people teams is really easy because they all think they know how to do it because we're all people and we know how to do it. I think there's a little bit going on with I'm in business. I kind of know how to do finance. And you do, which is great. Um, but you've not had the 10 years of rigor that a chartered accountant to bring to something or the way that a finance team work about it because they have to report these numbers and you have to explain them. And they think about the business in a very different way. And so you want that synergy. If you're not providing that for the finance team, if you've just sat processing invoices and expenses, one, it's really frustrating to the team. But two, you're not adding value for what you're charging the business for. No, absolutely. And I think that that value piece about, you know, almost the decision drivers and decision support role of finance, which I I think we call it business partnering. But for me, it's like you say, it's decision support. It's like, here's some information. This is what it means. Make a decision based on, on, on that information. What does that that structure look like when it's working well what what do you think it should feel like for the organization when that that part of finance is performing at its best so firstly it should be seamless right so there's a big flow from reporting into planning analytics like where you come from and where you're going and what that, that could mean so that relationship has to be working right and by the way if reporting goes wrong you really notice it's like the wheels on the car right they fall off but you can have a Ford Fiesta with good wheels and you can have an Aston Martin with good wheels, right? They think as long as they go around, people don't notice that they're there or not. But they do notice the drip and the speed of the radio. Yeah. Um, the second bit is it should feel completely integrated. So if you're in a situation where you have, say, a product team coming and going, oh, we need to go and talk to finance and get their sign-off on this. No, right? They're drawing an us and them at that point. And actually, decisions are already being made, and it's being made suboptimally because you don't have all the views in the room. What you want is, right, the US country team is starting the meeting, and their finance person isn't there, and they wait because that person brings so much value and is an integral part of the team and isn't seen as them but as part of the US country management team in that case, they're in at the ground floor and they're viewed as one of us and part of the solution, right? They're not this other thing that's imposing control. And that requires good relationships, which requires trust, not overstepping boundaries. So if finance are saying you cannot do something, probably something's gone wrong, right? We can have reservations and we can say, well, we don't think this is commercially a good idea or we can't fund this. So that becomes a business level prioritization conversation, not a thou shalt not. Um, because we're not tasked with doing that. We're the critical friend, we're the coach, we're the umpire. We'll tell you if it's going to work or not, but you actually have to deliver the thing and you're responsible for the customer impact and relationships and the risks associated with the product. So that integrated nature 
where you're looking for your business partner and you're valuing their input and they're part of the team helping you create, that's where it needs to get to. But in order to do that, you actually need people that you don't hire early on, typically in most startups, right? So you, you've got to have people who are reasonably comfortable swearing off at senior level are not shy about sharing their views, are very rigorous and commercial in how they think. So they're not going to disappear into the detail of how are we going to account for this and how is it reported. They just want to make sure the business idea makes sense and have a real nose for value. And that means they're talking to the business on its terms in ways they understand. And it's not coming across as some archaic black hole of, well, I just throw stuff into finance and then I don't know when I'm going to get something back and I don't know what they're going to think about it because they're at the table. I love that. So basically, if you're fine, if people are coming to you with, uh, I want to do this estate, yes. they want to do, I want to do this, can we fund it stage? You're already too late. So that's the sign of yes. Yeah, that's basically a sign of a decision support function that isn't working. Whereas if you're coming yeah. and working with them at that initial stage and actually building out the idea and building out the proposition, that's the sign of an effective business partnering function for you. Yes. I mean, we used to have a rule of thumb at, at Bain when I was doing something that's like, is the client asking the right question? Mm. So we've, we've had clients come to us with... I mean, the classic case was we should build a global production platform for our manufacturing because we'll save lots of money on buying everything in one supply chain. And then you pointed out the elements of the product they were manufacturing could only, you know, that could only be done locally. And that's 80% of that. It doesn't stack up. Only 20% of your cost base is accessible to the solution. So you're asking the wrong question, right? You're asking us to help get really efficient in your supply chain management. We can do that. But it's not going to solve your problem, which is your cost base completely out of work, right? So let's ask the real question. How do you get your cost base then? And the same thing happens with finance, right? If I want to launch a staking product. Okay, but why? What, what customer problem are you trying to solve? What value are you going to provide to the customer? What value are you going to extract from the customer, right? Because it's, we're a business, we're not a charity. We need to get paid for things. How is that going to work? And... It may be that staking isn't the right opportunity. By the way, I think it's a huge opportunity for crypto business likely in there right now. But that decision of we need to do staking had already been made before that conversation started, whereas the conversation should be what services do our customers need and how can we deliver economic value for them, which we can then capture some part of, i.e. how do we monetize the customer base? And so you want finance involved in that first conversation, not the should we launch this product. Now, it's better to be involved in the should we launch this product conversation than not. And the next stage down is how is this product performing? And they'll be happy with its performance against what we initially expected. But call that back to budgeting and planning, right? If I don't know what teams are launching and what their expected benefits are, how can I put together a reasonable plan of what cash resources we need? How can I fund the business? So it's back to that thing that everything shows up in the numbers, even something as mundane as customer research and what I'm thinking that feels as far removed from finance as possible. But no, product design is critical to business model design, which is critical to the economics of the business, which is critical to your financial success. So you have to look across all of that chain and have your people in the finance team do it because it can't just be you, right? If, if the finance team is seen as owing, that's equally as bad, right? Because you, you, you sort of turn up as this rather maniacal Father Christmas with all the elves working in the background, right? And you might give a bonus at the end of the year, you might not. But that's a mystery, right? And that, that can't be the case, right? So you want very capable people. And I, I'm always delighted when finally we get to the stage of, yeah, well, I don't need you in this meeting. I want Bernard, I want Byron, or Melissa, because actually I'm going to get a better answer out of them than I am out of you, because you're just going to ask them. So that's what you need to get to. Um, and it's a long journey. Uh, and people aren't necessarily expecting climate to be going on that. So the first bit is they feel the lack, but that could be anywhere in the organization. What you also find is people hiring analytical teams themselves to do shadow climates. And that's really bad because then you've got two sources of truth and you have to win because you report the numbers. <laughs> but that can create real tension in the business if you get that. That road, so try not to go there. 
that's a really good point, actually, because you talked about the finance business partnering. It's not something you start out with and you don't have that no. level of individual in at the beginning. So what are the signs that you you need that resource, that you need to start investing in that kind of skill and capability? Because you, you mentioned, obviously, different analytical teams. That sounds like a really obvious when when they're looking for budget for an analyst. An analyst that, yes. That's when you start going, hang on a second. Yes, and don't get me wrong, there, there can be times when like marketing spend, you need analytics close to the business and analysts are precisely the right sort of people for them to be hiring, but it is a checkpoint. Yeah. Right? Why is this being hired? Um, I think the, the first sort of sign, which is normally when I come into the business actually, is when the next decision of what the business needs to be doing next is not so obvious. Mm. So it, at Monzo in 2017, it was get a banking license or get our mobilization. Um, in 2018, it was get customer economics to be positive, right? We need to be showing that we can actually generate profit from these customers or at least start chipping away at our fixed cost base. Once we were into 2019, it was, oh, we need to grow the product base. We're looking at the US and there were four or five other things. So suddenly it was like, you've got five priorities. And that's when you're starting to make trade-offs. We have the same thing with Luna, right? We're in 40 different countries. So do we put an engineering product against the US? Or do we put it against Nigeria? Or do we put it against Malaysia? Right? Once you start seeing those trade-off conversations about meaningful resource allocation and meaningful people allocations, that's when you need to be starting to step in because you need to frame that back to what is our strategy? What have we said we're going to focus on? How have we said we're going to compete? How are we going to win? How does this market fit into that picture because the decisions become less obviously good or bad, right? right. For Monzo, not having a banking license was bad. So anything that was required to get the license was good. Very simple prioritization. Mm. Cool. If you're then thinking about the relative investment between two different geographic markets, both of which are good ideas, you just can't do both or do both well, that's when you need to start building that capability. And it probably starts much earlier than you think. Yeah, and another warning sign actually is when the business starts getting big enough that you can justify having a person doing something. So the finance team starts really tight with lots of generalists mm. and everyone's doing stuff off the side of their desk, right? You don't have enough people for segregation of duties, even like managing banking, that's what everyone's in, it, right? People dialing in to move money from the bank in from a beach in Turkey, what's happening, <laughs> right? Because there were so few. But then as it gets bigger, you suddenly have this white space and you know what? Tax isn't done by some so off the side of their desk. You can have a person doing tax. And very quickly you have a team doing tax. Yeah, and in Luna, we're much more complicated in some ways. So we've got sales tax and transfer pricing and a very complicated tax. So suddenly there's five people doing tax. And this is not having to go at tax accountants. They're brilliant. But look, you end up with a silo because that becomes their first team. And they're not in finance anymore. They're in the tax team. And that is where you start tripping over yourself. And again, you're making priority calls. So what's the level that sits above those individual teams? Your first level of leadership in finance, but also in the business as a whole, how are they having commercial conversations? And you see that that layer opening up. There's a gap between the senior execs and the managers. That's also where you need to start thinking about building that capability. And, and when you're when you know that a business is ready, because um, how do you sort of not justify, but how do you explain the value of finance and finance business partnering in particular to the wider organisations? Because what I found it's really interesting is seeing the rest of the businesses. Um, reaction to, to having that finance business partner. Those that have worked with a good one before tend to be like, gimme, gimme, gimme. Those that perhaps yeah. haven't had that support or had a good experience with that kind of support tend to be a very much, they don't see the point and that it's resource that can be spent elsewhere. So how do you approach that? Um, I'd love to say I've cracked the code on this one. Um, <laughs> I haven't. So I, I want to say in my defense, but it's not in my defense. So it's very obvious that those are the first heads that get cut whenever you have some kind of headcount reduction, mm -hmm. right? But you haven't hired them yet. They're these theoretical things. They don't exist. Uh, and you're trying to do some of that work today with people 
who are trying to branch out. And, and bear in mind, if you're in the reporting function, right, you've been hired for a particular skill set. It's very attractive to move into the space. And it's a natural career progression for many, many folks. But it's tough because it, it's a mindset shift. So crossing that chasm feels minor because you're just moving in finance. It's really hard and people struggle with it. So the first thing is those heads naturally don't, don't run. Um, what I've typically managed to do is hire a senior person in that area. So someone who's a counterpart to me who naturally has the gravitas and experience has typically built out those areas before and can go into that with the business in a very different way than what people are used to seeing from other finance mm-hmm. folks. And that acts as an example. Okay. This is how it should work to the rest of the team because they're trying to do something new, right? It's not criticism. They just have, they've never seen it in many cases. So something you haven't seen before, it's very difficult to figure out how to do it. And then you see someone doing it and you're like, oh, and I get that now. It's much easier to watch and copy than it is to theoretically read a book or just figure through something. Mm. And the same then applies to the business because you're right. You get that pull effect, the gimme, gimme, give me. But it does start from that. Sorry, why are you in the meeting? Uh, or why do you need this person? Are you sure you need this many heads? Of, it's just finance, right? <laughs> um, and that's, that's really tough. Yeah. And, but if you start and it's almost like the, the million dollar slides we used to call them the bank. So consultants produce slide tests. I know, right? It's not, it's not, it's almost like they're paid by the page, right? <laughs> not not quite as dense as the Yeah. But what, what, there were one or two slides that would typically just encapsulate the problem and move the client to action because they tell you something about your business. And what I found from an FPNA point of view is if you start on the analytical thread and put stuff out there and start offering perspective on particular things that are trying business problems, people catch themselves and suddenly go, that's interesting. I haven't thought about it that way. And then they want more and more of it. When I was leading the strategy team at Barclays and the retail business banks, this is before LIBOR, before Andrew Jenkins moved up, the, you know, we were operating at sort of pseudo group level. The strategy team didn't really do very much. We weren't in meetings at Exco or anything else, but we started a campaign of providing insight, whether the Exco wanted it or not, they were getting it. Um, and, and actually what I started with was, um, competitor analysis. So we'd get the entire team in for a results day at 7 a.m. By nine o'clock, they had a two-page document that compared their financial performance with our financial performance, but more importantly, had culled anything we could find on strategic drivers of the business. So a lot of finance teams start producing what I call elevator analysis. Right, This number went up because this driver went down. Yes, but, but why? Did you make a conscious shift in pricing? Did you? What was the business driver rather than the numerical driver? And that got people's attention. Because I knew they were reading it because we were getting questions. And I always had a three-stage strategy in mind for that, which was get interesting stuff in front of people, get them to ask questions, get them to engage with it. Be asked to do more work on that stuff. Tell me more about this. Dive into it. Figure out more. And actually, you knew you were winning when you hit the third stage, which is when they'd go, oh, forget about that. I want you to work on this because this is a more pressing problem for me. Um, and we were just about getting there when... LIBOR happened and my team got merged up into groups. So let's start the process over again. It's the same thing with business partnering. I think the way in is just add value without being asked. In critical areas, you need to pick your battles, right? Is it somewhere where you think the exec might be receptive to that kind of viewpoint where you can see very readily that you can add value to decision making? You have access to data. You don't need a lot of context necessarily. Um, because you don't have that trust yet. You haven't built those relationships. So you're not going to extract from the business a lot of what they're thinking, but you can provide that critical friend sort of view. So things like, where is our revenue concentrated? Which customers produce most of our revenue? Do we have an 80-20 Pareto skew? Yes. Did you know that? Right. Which customers generate most of our costs? And what you find is, People are so caught up in averages and working through their reporting metrics and performance metrics that they haven't taken a step back and gone, 
do we actually want all of these customers, <laughs> right? Because actually, a lot of businesses can get by by firing a few customers because they cost more to serve than you ever extract from them in revenue. But that's not how startups think. It's not how product teams think. They think more is good. And actually, 90% of the time, they're right. But sometimes, actually, you want to tweak what you're doing. Um, and that external perspective can change how people are thinking about business. And once they start having that change, they want more of it. And as you said, you know, it's the gimme, gimme, gimme more. But you almost need to get start the flywheel moving and keep going at it. It's going to take a while because the first bit will be like, that's interesting. I didn't know finance did that. Then you get into it. That's interesting. Uh, but what you haven't figured out is this because people then go, oh, you're actually saying I'm doing a bad job managing, which you're not. But I should have thought of that. Um, and I, I need a good answer. Let me explain to you why that, that number makes sense, right? That, that's, that's an interesting little moment when you start going, okay, I, I'm seeing that. And then they get over that and realize actually working with you, they can get to much better answers faster. They're much more credible in front of the CEO and the board and actually all the resource decisions start becoming easier. The flywheel just builds. And at that point, you're in this position to say, here's Fred, he's your business partner. He's going to make this work for you. And then you know, Fred's off to the races. But you've got to lay the groundwork. <laughs> Love that. Sometimes literally off to the races with the sales team, let's be honest. Yes. Um, <laughs> But the, the joy of finance, you, you occasionally get good jollies because people <laughs> yeah. do want to sell you on stuff, but you're quite late in the sales process. Sorry. Yeah. That's, hey, that's all good. It's always all great insight. Um, but I think one of the interesting pieces there is about it's important that your first hire in that business partnering is, is really good because that's the one that lays the groundwork for the rest coming through. So you, you might... You, you know, there is a temptation, isn't there, to start with somebody a little bit more junior in that business partnering role, just because they, you haven't got you know, maybe the funding that you're hoping for. But actually, I think what you're saying there is you want that first one to smash it out of the park so that you can then drive yeah. business forwards. And they can help other members of the finance team who maybe are making that transition do some yeah. of that work as well. So actually, you don't need to build out the team underneath them immediately. No. You should do it quicker off less. And I've always left it too late. So when I say I haven't got a code on this, I'm, I'm being honest, right? I've always left that too late. But they can get other members of the team to support, right? And actually, if mm. you're a reasonably junior, say two years out post-qualification, you're just sort of running, going and working on the product team on the tax treatment for their product. It's quite interesting, but you need to make sure they feel that's a successful assignment as well. Because mm. um, I've seen it where quite junior accounting folks can just walk in and spew out all the accounting issues that are on their mind. 90% aren't actually going to be relevant to the product, mm. but they just scare the hell out of the product team because suddenly they're like, you're raising all these problems. <laughs> but they're just thinking, right? They're just verbalizing their thought process because that's what they've been trained to do, rightly. Um, you, you need to buffer that and mm. learning that sort of partner craft. Uh, as the accountants and consultants would call it, most people haven't done at that stage in their career. So it's a real acceleration of that. How do you build bridges and come across as sensible and not something that's going to get in the way and a barrier to be got through and a time sink? Um, you want people to be spending time with you because they want to, not yeah. because they feel they have to. And, and I guess if you need that first person coming in with, like you say, that senior coach in that business partnering versus necessarily doing it all themselves and bring, elevating the rest of the finance team. Like, how do you justify the spend that's required for that kind of role with the senior exec? Like, have you figured out any great metrics? It's really, I have this conversation a lot in that we talk a lot about automating, freeing up capacity to do the more important part of finance, which is this decision support, but people struggle to put a number on it. So how do you justify it? Have you got any top tips for those that are thinking about bit starting to bring um, that function out? So it, it, it's not more important, it's as important. Um, so as I said before, right, reporting control for over, you know about it in big, big rush, right? And I've had misstatements. It's not fun. Um, but it's the start of the journey. And if, you, if you're not doing the business partner, if you're not doing the value, then you're 
really realizing a small potential of how finance could affect the business and therefore the business will underperform. Uh, but it's not something you can immediately go right, the ROI on this investment and this person will generate. Um, the best thing I've found so far is actually just sheer bloody mindedness of <laughs> I need it. Um, and, and as a new CFO, you, you kind of get, you get one or two cards for that, right? You can't sit there and do the rest of it. Um, and the more enlightened CEOs, and I've worked with many of who are in this category, um, get it, right? When you say, look, what you need is people who can actually commercially partner with the business. You do all of the sense checking or the, the critical perspective providing that you're having to do right now, right? So founder CEOs are brilliant to work with because they are obsessed with the business. They've got up at the canvas several times. They've created this thing from an effort of sheer will, right? So they are definitely in it. They are full on, all in, and completely committed. But that also means that they care about every decision going. And they've actually been fulfilling this challenge role for a long period of time because there was no one else. And suddenly you're saying, you don't have to do that anymore. Imagine what it'd be like if a proposal comes to you and it's been thoroughly costed and all the assumptions are in there and you know exactly that it's been challenged. Wouldn't that make your life easier? Because then it's a 10-minute decision, not an hour discussion. Yes. Okay. This is what this person does. But then they actually have to do it. Brilliant. Oh, that, that, I think that is the perfect way to illustrate the value of that finance business partnering, especially with founders. I like oh, that's a really great way. And I've suddenly yeah. realized we have rapidly run out of time, Alwyn. So before we finish, it'd be great to get a quick, you know, to talk about um, obviously the work that Luno does. I realized that we've very much been talking about you and your role as um, CFA, but we haven't talked about Luno and what you guys do. So for those that perhaps listen going, oh, that sounds a bit interesting, um, you know, particularly in the world of crypto at the moment, tell us a little bit about what Luno is doing. Yeah, so... Uh... Luno is a leading cryptocurrency trading app, so wallet and exchange. Um, so we provide a safe and trusted way for essentially the mass market or anybody who's interested in crypto to get into the market in a safe and curated way. Um, so we're not going to bamboozle you with 12,000 altcoins. We're right here to educate and introduce people to the power that this technology can bring. And you know, our mission is to put the power of crypto into everyone's hands. Uh, we've got about 11 million customers. Um, we're all over the world. Uh, we started in South Africa about nine years, 10 years ago now. Um, we're in Malaysia. We've just launched in the US. Um, we're in the UK. So really a global business. We're in 40 different countries. Uh, but it's really about providing that first step uh, into crypto and showing what it can do for consumers. Um, so five minutes or less on your phone, you can buy your first crypto and suddenly get exposure to this whole new amazing world, which we don't know where it's going to go. Um, it is the bleeding edge of finance and, uh, that comes with great responsibility. So it's very easy for people to lose money in this market. Um, if you don't know what you're doing, uh, and so we are there to help you make those first steps in, in the right way. Um, and, it's changing so rapidly as an industry. It's, it's fascinating. Uh, and one of the challenges as a CFO has been just watching the volatility in the market and what that means for how you talk to customers, how you talk to them long term about investing, how they can safely get exposure to this exciting new sector. Uh, it's a real product challenge that Lena has been rising to um, over the last year that I've been involved. And it's very exciting to see where the product will go next. I think that volatility piece can be applied across the board right now in terms of what's going on in the world. So maybe that's a topic for another another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, if you're happy to bring me back, I'm happy to talk about it. Yeah, deal with it. absolutely. Um, once, I think, once I figured that out. <laughs> you can teach the rest of us. But no, thank you so much, Alwyn. It's been an absolute pleasure having on your show. And I think I speak for our listeners to say um, it's been really great to get your insight, especially from somebody that comes at it from a very strategic angle, almost the opposite way in, which has been it's been brilliant. And listening to your insights on and how to, to build that team, how to, to manage that and how to support that decision making. It's been value, really valuable. So thank you for thank you for sharing your, your insight, your experiences um, and the good and the bad. 
It's really great. Well, as you said, the point of the podcast is to be the helping hand and just show that people are in in similar situations. So yeah. you know, if I can share and help them, um, it's been a lot of fun. So thank you for having me. No, absolutely. And if people want to find out more about Luno, about yourself, what you're doing, what's the best way to to, to find um, to find that find that out? Uh, so Luno is active on all sort of good social media platforms. Um, if you're in the UK, you can check out Luno One, which is our new community initiative. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. I'm not the most active tweeter, but I am there. <laughs> I think that it's probably the best place to reach me. Uh, and I'll be going to see this happen. So um, I, I'm reasonably uh, findable. I think there's a few rugby players who turn up higher in the Google searches for me, but you, you, I'm usually <laughs> on the stage. Absolutely. And for those of you that that, that uh, um, are struggling to find Alwyn on Google in amongst all those rugby players, um, don't worry, we'll put all of the links that he mentioned in the show notes. So thank you once again, Alwyn, um, and uh, thank you to our listeners that are still listening. Don't forget, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review, like and share it on social. It genuinely does make a difference. Um, and of course, if you feel like I should have asked any different questions, maybe there's a question you are burning to ask Alwyn right now, let me know. And maybe when I convince him to come back on the podcast, I'll get a chance to ask him then. So thanks, everyone. Take care, and I'll speak to you next time.